3: From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, how the pandemic is continuing to shape nursing home care. We'll hear from one of the region's longest running providers. Also, a new affordable housing complex is underway in Atlanta, and it has the backing of one of the city's health care systems. I'll speak with the CEO of Mercy Care and talk about the connections between stable housing and healthier communities. Plus, remembering the contributions of Bill Russell, the NBA Hall of Famer and civil rights activist, died Sunday. He was 88. Ron Thomas from Morehouse College joins me later in the program. And in just a moment, we will remember Nichelle Nichols. A sad day for so many Star Trek fans and more. All that's just ahead. But first this. This is breaking news at this time. Music Midtown. Is canceled. The annual September Music Festival that presents various acts will not take place. And while there's speculation, officials didn't really give a reason, tweeting, quote, Hey, Midtown fans, due to circumstances beyond our control, Music Midtown will no longer be taking place this year. We're looking forward to reuniting in September and hope we can all get back to enjoying the festival together again soon. Close quote. Now, earlier this year, a gun rights activist demanded that the festival lift its weapons ban, this after Georgia's new permitless carry law was passed. Now, Rolling Stone is citing, quote, sources who worked with the festival confirmed to Rolling Stone that Georgia's gun laws were to blame, close quote. Atlanta City Council President Doug Shipman tweeted in response, a sad day. As Atlanta's music, Midtown is canceled, public policy has real impacts, and in this case, economic and social implications on a great Tradition. Close quote. WAB News will have more later today during All Things Considered. Again, the annual music Midtown Festival is canceled. Now when we come back, remembering Michelle Nichols.
4: Strong interference on subspace, Captain. The planet must be a natural radio source.
1: She walks in beauty, like the night. Oh,
0: on the starship That's enterprise. That's Pipe it in.
2: Sounds like code, sir.
0: Lieutenant Uhura, take over navigation.
2: I want an all-woman security team on every transporter immediately. No one is to transport down to the planet unless it is on my order. Aye, aye, Lieutenant. What are you doing? Taking command of this ship. Ship's log supplemental. Lieutenant Uhura recording.
3: That's right, taking command. It's remained a favorite for millions of fans. And, of course, the diehards or affectionately called Trekkies, and so many offered on social media. It's a moment of sadness and gratitude from a lot of Trekkies, including myself. John DeMarco posted an incredible YouTube tribute to Nichelle Nichols, and that's where that clip came from. Nichols was the first black woman cast in a co-starring role for a television series, of course, talking about Star Trek. But there's so much more to the contributions of Nichelle Nichols, recruited by NASA to help bring more women and women of color to a career industry-dominated, by white men, and of course, her role in the civil rights movement. Well, I'm joined now by Utasha Womack, critically acclaimed author, filmmaker, and afro scholar. Utasha, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it.
4: Oh, thank you. This is exciting.
3: Yeah, I want to begin just with this tweet from NASA that says, we celebrate the life of Nichelle Nichols, Star Trek actor, trailblazer, and role model, who symbolized to so many what was possible. And I think that is a good way to sum it up. What are your reflections on Miss Nichols?
4: Yes. Well, uh, there's a a popular story about how Nichelle Nichols was considering quitting the show Mm -hmm. um, in its early years. As many fans know, she didn't have a lot of lines. She was very iconic uh, and symbolic. But uh, there was a a conversation she had with Martin Luther King Jr. Mm -hmm. He came to one of her shows and he convinced her to stay on the show, because he said, you're inspiring so many people, you're showing that uh, equality is real, you're showing that we can all live in harmony, and we need to see, you know, women, Black people in uh, roles in the future. And so, I just think it's very pivotal that, one, she listened to this great icon, Mm -hmm. and two, that she had such a grand impact. And a lot of
3: folks may not know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I do believe that Lieutenant Hur was the fourth in
4: command, right? She was the fourth in command, I believe. You know, her level of serenity, I think, was almost a, just a temperament for how to just deal with with controversy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I felt like she, she meant so much to so many people because she had this level of grace. She was clearly competent. And I feel like she was, she was someone who people could really connect with.
3: Mm. You know, it was the first time a black woman was featured on a primetime television series like this. I mean, we all know of the contributions of Diane Carroll and Julia. But, you know, black women, yeah, they have been on TV before, but let's be really clear. And, and no one is criticizing them for them. but we know what the roles were. They were using some type of domestic or small role. And that's not to say that those roles weren't important. But as her character was a main character, and given, I you know, tasha during the 60s, the social impact that her portrayal would make on so many young girls like us. And not only just a, another generation, but particularly for young kids to see someone like her in this role.
4: Well, I think about I, I compare her in some ways to growing up seeing Oprah Winfrey on television where it normalized seeing a, a black woman host a television show and she's in your home every day. I feel like Nichelle Nichols normalized seeing a black woman on television, but also a black woman doing things that men did. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, helping to, to fly ships, going into deep space, uh, and also thinking about people in these imaginary spaces, too,
3: mm-hmm.
4: you know, which she clearly occupied. She is clearly one of the only... She has to be one of the few women, uh, probably even the first, really depicted as a competent scientist in space. Mm-hmm. And for that reason, when you think of women in space... If you're not thinking about uh, Mae Jemison and others uh, in our creative worlds, she comes to mind.
3: And that is so important. And this year, as we welcome uh, Dragon Con to Atlanta, and I know because I go every year, I'm going this year. And there's always, always a a healthy dose of folks in their Star Trek cosplay and what have you. And I I imagine we'll see this. You mentioned space because NASA realized that. They realize that because even after Star Trek, they use Nichelle Nichols, they help she work with them to increase diversity within the space program, helping recruit women, particularly women of color. That in itself also is so important to her legacy.
4: Oh, it's major. And I think many people who are fans of hers aren't aware of her role in recruiting women into NASA. But if you think about it, you know, those women who she was recruiting, it was her image that they saw um, that could help them think beyond, you know, some of the fields that they were in to say, oh, this is something I could do. I want to be like Lieutenant Uhura.
3: You this is your space. Um, you are part. you considered and it's with good reason, a scholar in, in Afro futurism. And I've talked to your buddy, Tim Fielder, had him on this program. And for, you know, young kids of color who were in this space, I remember I had a friend, Michael, who was in Dungeons and Dragons, and the other kids were like, what's that? You know, it is so important to have this, this collaborative conversation so other kids, young kids, can be a part of this wonderful, whether folks like it or not or they don't understand it, this wonderful sort of creative space that we're all in when it comes to you know, sci-fi or Afrofuturism and all that. What do you hope, what's your hope, Nichols, will be remembered for future generations?
4: Well, her character was clearly iconic, but I think she demonstrates that there's a real relationship between these creative spaces and real life. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you have one of the most iconic civil rights leaders of the 20th century literally convincing an actress to maintain a role because she is inspiring people and giving them a vision of a future and then she reaches back to help actually bring real women into space yeah so you know anyone who says creativity is for the birds imagination whatever you know we're talking about a lady who gave new life to a character that fell on all sides of reality
3: and as we wrap up, uh, Utasha, what has she meant to you personally?
4: Well, she's like, a she's ubiquitous in the space. Uh, I mean, it's, it's almost like, you know, when you think about science fiction, Star Trek is so major. Um, she was the only woman, a prominent woman on the show. And so you can't think about science fiction without her name coming up, without her image being one of significance. And for me, you know, the fact she's from Chicago, yeah. as I am, uh-huh. uh, is very special. She had a dance background. She was a jazz singer, yep. and she gets to play in the role of the scientist. Um, I feel that she's so multifaceted, uh, and she took her role seriously and understood the impact. And I think that's something that creatives can be inspired by. Certainly I am. Not to mention just her her image and style. Yes, (laughs) because you can
3: be stylish in the future. Let's be really clear.
4: You can be stylish in the future. And there's so many people who've referenced her look Mm -hmm. in a lot of science fiction works. The cover of my book, Mm Afrofuturism, by John Jennings, he said he used her face as the reference. Uh, Tim Fielder used her face as the reference Mm -hmm. for his uh, graphic novels as well. And I'm sure if we look through a lot of images of Black women in space through certain eras, we'll say, she looks familiar. Wait. That's Nichelle Nichols.
3: <laughs> <laughs> that is our queen, Utasha Womack, critically acclaimed author, filmmaker, and Afrofuturist scholar. Utasha, thank you so much for taking time. I really appreciate it. Got to have you come back to talk about your latest offering in the future. We really appreciate it. I'll oh,
4: look forward to it. Go see <laughs> <laughs> <Look at> you. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. Bye.
3: You're listening to Closer Look from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. It's been said over and over again, COVID-19 has highlighted or revealed inequities, flaws, challenges, and then some within so many of our quality of life areas. And that includes the urgent need for change in nursing home care. Atlanta, our nation, of course, facing a watershed moment, which will require significant structural, systemic, and even organizational changes throughout the nursing home industry. Dick Cato is CEO of AG Rhodes, the nonprofit nursing home provider and one of Atlanta's oldest nonprofit organizations that operates three nursing homes in the re- region. CEO Cato, welcome. Thank you for taking time. I appreciate it.
2: Thank you so much, Rose. Thank you for having me.
3: Well, let's begin with this shifting and changing within the nursing home care industry. What's been revealed to you all and perhaps maybe nothing new, but maybe yeah. amplified since all of
2: this? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the first thing I would say is how devastating um, COVID has been for everyone, but really particularly for our nation's most vulnerable um, who happen to live in nursing homes, um, and those are senior populations um we we very unfortunately um you know the 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 case point i always turn to is at its highest point a quarter of the deaths in our nation occurred in nursing homes Mm. um in my organization we um had about 30 deaths and we've had cumulatively about 330 cases um and i do not take that we do not take that lightly you know each death is one too many um but to your point it it really noted a lot of um really issues that we have with how our nursing homes are structured or systemed um, in the United States. And it really has brought out a call for change of that um, in, in our nursing homes.
3: First of all, we want to send our condolences to those those 30 deaths. Obviously, that's 30 families that with lost the 300 cases. Mm-hmm. And I want to ask you, though, we also hear about staffing has become an issue as well. Let's begin there. Where are you all in terms of staffing? Have you rebounded to those numbers that you had pre-COVID-19?
2: Yeah, we have not rebounded, and I suspect it's going to be a, take a long time. Um, staffing, uh, what we call our workforce, is our most um most difficult issue at present. Um I will say that if you had asked me prior to COVID what was our biggest um, issue as an organization, I would have also told you staffing. Mm-hmm. But of course oh. COVID has unearthed a whole lot. A lot of people have left the industry um because of COVID. A lot of the requirements um because of, of COVID have have really slimmed um our staffing um to 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 really um difficult levels. But I will say that we have a very very resilient bunch Mm -hmm. um and and i think one good thing that has come out of covid is it has shown um that many of us knew um that our staff is our secret source you know they are they are our frontline workers they're now being seen as essential workers um but to those of us in this industry we've always seen them as essential and if there's one good to come out of covid it has shown that
3: you all operate three in three locations correct
2: Yes. Three non-profit um, nursing homes. Been around since 1904, our mm-hmm. flagship location um, in the Grand Park area of Atlanta. And in the 90s, we opened two more locations, um, one on Emory's Wesley Woods campus um, mm-hmm. and one in Marietta, Cobb County.
3: For the services that you all provide and the needs, and then there's a demand, are you able to meet that demand that folks have? Yeah.
2: yeah. We are not, it is, it is It is. so difficult, particularly now, one of the other um, sad points about COVID, um, it is that shown the need for us to have more private occupancy rooms in our nursing homes. Um, you know, us like most traditional nursing homes are really based on shared occupancy rooms, which allowed COVID to spread. So because of that, now we've had to cut down on our occupancy um, deliberately to ensure that we stop, um, you know, sort of that spread of COVID. So that has has really challenged us and and challenged our ability to meet the needs, especially for, again, the most vulnerable, especially for those people who are underserved, who are underinsured Mm -hmm. um, and and really need our assistance.
3: And for that population, CEO Cato, what are you doing? Is there a wait list? Are you able to, you don't want to recommend folks to go to another facility, but if that's what you have to do. That's what you have to do. How often are you having to turn people
2: down yeah, we won't say yeah, away but
3: turn them down
2: Yeah we've had um at times during outbreak surges um to to actually do that to to literally call a lot of our, our hospital partners and providers and say hey you know, we can't take any admissions for the next few days, you know, because we're, we're trying to shore things up here. Um, and it's been very, very difficult and very, very unfortunate. Um, you know, we, we don't maintain a waiting list. So we we like to think that as soon as things normalize, we're able to get um, folks back into an, nursing homes. Um, but I think this is a, not just a, a issue we deal with in the state of Georgia, but it's a it's a. a, a a national issue with the rising numbers of seniors, with the rising people amounts of people that need nursing home care. We're just not able to to take care of them more.
3: Were you all able to be supported through some of the programs, the funding coming out of Washington D.C. Or you're yeah. all still able, and not only D.C. but here in the state?
2: Yeah, and I am good. Yeah, yeah, I think I think um, both on the federal side um, and on the state side, you know, we have gotten assistance, that I think has kept our industry afloat, our sector afloat. Um, you know, I tell people that we can't play politics with with this thing that they call COVID. And I'm mm-hmm. I'm, I'm happy to say that I think um, on both sides of the aisle, we have have, have gotten a lot of the support um, that's needed, but more support is needed for our nation seniors as well. This is a, a, a problem that's going to continue to go forward. And we need to change the way nursing homes look. and and feel like in the United States of America.
3: Based on what you just told me then, where do you begin? If you were the person, if you were the czar of of, of nursing home services and the fixer of all this, where are you beginning?
2: Yeah, yeah. so the payment issue is a huge issue. Um, we, in Age Roads, take care of 70% of our residents. We take care of our own Medicaid, which in itself is a very, very difficult proposition. And we, we from a financial situation, we we lose money on every one of those individuals. Um, we are a nonprofit, though, so we're able to do a whole lot more. Mm-hmm. The other side of it that I would say, Rose, is structurally. Um, our our nation's nursing homes need to look a, a lot different. Um, AG Roads just embarked on a on a on a significant thirty-seven and a half million dollar project to build a new nursing home. What we think nursing homes need to look like with 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 neighborhoods, small neighborhoods of residents, instead of long hallways with multiple residents, mm-hmm. um, to, to to give people that not just privacy but that dignity in life as they age and as they live, to allow them to live. Better. And as we say, to bring the home back into nursing home. Building a
3: community for those who are, are aging and in their last years, what have you, you want a community as opposed to some of the, the typical, the structure that we see that yes. is very, for some feels very stoic and and, and, and inst, in, institutionalized in a sense. You yes. want to change that to a community. Yep.
2: In you just idea. described it perfectly. That's exactly what it is. We're building a community. We're building a home. We're building somewhere you and I, Rose, would want to, to to live. Should we age and should we need to go to a nursing home?
3: I'm going to speak with Catherine Laura a little bit later. She's CEO of, of Mercy Care here. So then, as with everything, every time I yeah. talk about a subject like this, people say yeah. it takes a holistic approach. Yeah. Then you all can't do it alone in your industry. You have to have partnerships, CEO Cato. Yes. You have to have public-private partnerships, Simple. Is that what you're saying? Yeah,
2: Yeah, totally. Um, Catherine's actually probably one of the best qualified to speak to this in her her previous life. She she worked um, a lot with with populations such as this. And you're correct. That thirty seven and a half million dollar project that we speak about. um, We were lucky through private and public uh, investment, public through through um, governmental programs and private through philanthropy to have a big chunk of this, you know, paid for and funded. Um, which which completely gave us the impetus to go forward with it.
3: Deke, as we wrap up, and I always like to ask this question because our listeners want to know, too. We always know about the problem and then we hear what people say are the possible solutions. But I'm wondering, is there a model or a template out there that folks can look to to say, hey, this is what Deke and his army of folks want to do? His team, is there a model out there somewhere, either in this nation or, or somewhere else?
2: Yeah, there is you know we've looked at models internationally and here um the best models are based on that sound um principle of household of community like you said smaller units we've seen it work throughout europe we've seen it even work right here in the United States in some areas. Um, the difficulty is doing that for individuals who do not have the ability to pay. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm here to say that AG Roads is starting one of those models here, and we hope that our project and our, our Cobb community is going to be an, an example um, for many to look and see that it is possible. Where there's a will and where the community is able to come forward um, collectively with that will, we will have a model that we will be able to be duplicated um, throughout the state and throughout the nation. Mm-hmm.
3: Deke Cato, CEO of AG Roads, a nonprofit nursing home provider here in the Atlanta region. CEO Cato, thank you so much for taking time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for what you do for so many people.
2: Thank you so much, Rose, for what you do for, for, for spreading the spotlight on this as well.
3: And you're listening to Closer Look from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Anytime affordable housing is a topic of conversation and the focus is about new development, you can count on me to ask, hey, how much impact will it have within the region's housing affordability crisis? Today will be no different. A new affordable housing project is underway near the King Memorial Marti Station, and it has the backing of Mercy Care, which is part of the St. Joseph Health System. So let's bring in, you just heard, Deke Cato, give her her props, Mercy Care CEO, Catherine Lawler. CEO Lawler, thanks so much for taking time. I really appreciate it.
5: Oh, it's a delight to be here with you, Rose.
3: So as I was talking with Deke Cato about the importance of community as it relates to when we talk about health care, obviously. And now we're talking about affordable housing, healthier communities. It's all intertwined. I know that's not lost on you.
5: No, absolutely. And um, that's really why we've made this commitment through the housing project is um, you know this is what we know it takes for people to be healthy in the 21st century. Healthcare is a really important part of it. But the science shows it's actually a relatively small part of it and it's the opportunity to live in a safe community into quality affordable housing have access to good jobs and good life opportunities that's really what makes people healthy um and our history here in atlanta um to making people going back to making people healthy goes all the way um to the 1880s mm-hmm. when the first sisters of mercy came here um, they looked to the great science at that time, which really um, was advances made in healthcare, uh, remarkably out of the Civil War. So they started Atlanta's first hospital. It was a relatively new idea at the time. Um, and in asking that same question in this century, saying what does it make to be help people be healthy in our community? How do we embrace the latest and greatest in innovation? Um, it really is this comprehensive approach and um, doing more than just talking about it, but uh, starting to turn some dirt and make it happen.
3: So this comprehensive approach that you're talking about, we're in the 21st century. But I always like to ask this question to through your lens, what is not being talked about enough in terms of when we talk about healthier communities, stable housing?
5: So I think I mentioned, you know, what we know makes people healthy is access to opportunity. It's also being valued and having a place of belonging, being part of community. Um, And as we tackle that in Atlanta, we definitely need models like the project that we're a part of with our partners Penrose. But at the heart of that, we have to also consider that our history here in our community is a history of racial inequity. Mm -hmm. Um, That's part of what has determined who has access to opportunity. That's part of uh what says who belongs and who has a sense of community and so when we do projects like ours it's it is certainly about the units produced it is about um who you know getting more units and we know we need more affordable housing in our community but to address those long-term structural issues what we're doing in this project is having everybody do what they do but also work in a different way we're Mm -hmm. trying to drive systems change um, and so we'd like to have a day in Atlanta where it doesn't surprise anybody that a healthcare institution like ours is making an investment in housing because um, we know that that's that kind of systems change is where we're going to address those long-term issues that have have created the some of the health disparities we have today. And
3: so this is going to be the Mercy Housing is Southeast yeah. is this, this is what's ah. going to be
5: Well, so we're um, Mercy Housing is a wonderful organization here in Atlanta. Um, They are a separate organization. We all have our legacy back to the Sisters of Mercy. Okay, Um, And they're doing all kinds of wonderful projects, including one right down the street. We have partnered with them in the past. Um, This project is called Macaulay Station. It's actually Mm -hmm. named for the founder of Sisters of Mercy, Catherine Macaulay, um, an Irish woman um, who started a worldwide organization um, in the early 1800s. So Macaulay Station has two phases. The first phase is what we just broke ground on, Mm -hmm. um, and that's 170 units, all of them affordable. But it also includes um, permanent supportive housing, so housing for individuals who may need some supports, as well as some units that we'll be able to use to put our patients in when they need housing in the most immediate sense.
3: I want to back up for a moment because you use that word, use that 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 phrasing, it's all going to be affordable. Now, folks that listen to this program will tell you and they'll say, CEO Lawler, folks have been telling Rose Scott this for years now. So I'm going to ask you, too, when you talk about it's all going to be affordable, what does that look like? Affordable in terms of current market rate or affordable? What are you basing this metric on? hmm.
5: So we use the standard definition of affordability around what's something, it's just a term, it's called area median income, Mm -hmm. it's a federal term, everybody has to use it. It basically looks at what's the average median income in a community, and then you peg the units to that. So some of our units will be affordable for people at 30% of area median income, which is really the... um, Uh, Lowest, uh, the most affordability in terms of in the in the business of affordable housing. That's when you are providing the most, Mm -hmm. Um, and then some at sixty percent and some at eighty percent. But when I say hundred percent, you know we have many great developments. Sometimes they're uh, mixed, so you have market rate mixed in with affordable. We went all affordable for this project, Mm -hmm. really recognizing um, that we're in a community that's changing. So as you said, we're right across from the King Memorial Station, which provides really important transit Mm -hmm. access. Not only next door to our health clinic, so healthcare access, but we also know that the old Fourth Ward has changed. It's changed since we first moved here in two thousand and one. I know. I used to play
3: basketball over there, and it's totally different. Oh,
5: you know the park, yeah. Yeah,
3: it's Mm it's different than it was in nineteen from nineteen (laughs) ninety six. I'll tell you that.
5: Yeah, it absolutely is. And so by um, putting the stake in the ground here, we we want to make sure that there's affordability inside a changing community, so that. Um, perhaps residents who have lived here a long time will still have access to do that through having these affordable units. So our first 170 um, will be for all kinds of folks. um, And particularly we have two bedroom units. So if you have a small family, Um, but our next phase, um, Macaulay Station uh, phase two is going to be 100% affordable for older adults. So Mm -hmm. we'll have senior units as well, you know, recognizing long, long contributions of so many residents of Old Fourth Ward who are feeling some of the pressures of rising costs.
3: When you think about how this fits into long-term plans, when we talk about supporting and encouraging similar projects in the city, and and I don't need to tell you that Atlanta does have a a housing affordability crisis, the the entire region, and we're not the only city to deal with this. But as it relates to how this fits into long-term plans, what is your hope that this is a model moving forward? And are you optimistic that we'll continue to see this?
5: Oh, I absolutely think so, uh, Rose. Just from the healthcare side, this is the future of healthcare. You know, people don't necessarily want um, just health services; they go to healthcare to be healthy. Um, and so, more and more, this is what it takes to be healthy. So, this really is the future of healthcare. It's a, it's just. The jargony word is called social determinants of health. Mm -hmm. You know, when we weren't living very long, like 100 years ago, when average life expectancy was more like 47, you didn't talk about things like this. But now that we get to live so much longer, this really is the roadmap um, to investing in keeping people healthy. So I expect you're going to see much more of this.
3: This is the roadmap that you've just said, but are you able to point to... Other areas in the nation, or even right here in Georgia, where we're seeing that this has already been something that's been one, extremely beneficial, and you're able to look at the outcomes for the community that where you are merging this housing and, and, and healthier communities and health centers and everything like that, that you can say, that's where we want to be when all this is done.
5: Yep. There are examples all across the country, I'm really glad to say, um, including some here in the southeast, um, but models um, that have done what we're doing, which is kind of building that campus so you have proximity and access to, to services. But it isn't just about that it's um, making them all available to everyone and integrating it so making it easy to have access to those things so the good news is yes this has been tried many other places this is a special project in atlanta because of this health investment not just from us so mm-hmm. you know we um have a number of ways that we have, have actually invested in this project including owning the land mm-hmm. um and making it available to the project in a 99 year uh, ground lease um we have cash in the project we're 20 percent owner Um, Inside uh, the project also has a parking garage for the residents, but uh, we worked And this is a very um, interesting aspect of it is also going to be a parking garage for our employees at the clinic, so we were able to combine uses to do that. Um, And then we're part of a much larger network called Trinity Health, and we got them to put cash in the deal as well. Um, So, you know, when you embrace affordability, I know you've had many affordable housing speakers on your show before. It's a complex business Mm -hmm. um, and uh, not shying away from that complexity is kind of one of the examples of this project as well.
3: What you can't control all the time, obviously, is the market, and there are, as we know now with the supply chain, there are things tied to that that you all can't control, which might be the cost of goods, might be the cost of labor, because you're working with partners here. Um, You all had to get a little bit of assistance. I believe you got a housing revenue bonds. Has that been all completed and and implemented and on on
5: par here? Yeah, we were lucky to invite um, a number of partners uh, to the project, so including a really Robust financing package, and again, we have a partner in this Penrose development who really brings that affordable housing experience um, to the table. We've been, and we were able to bring the healthcare as well as the healthcare financing, and that combination is what made this successful. Um, but we also raised funding for this project, and so because of the unique appeal of the integration of health and housing, people really got that message and know that we need these kind of models in Atlanta today. So we were thrilled to have some other um, great community investors as well. So. Yeah, very optimistic, looking forward to moving residents in, Uh, you know, we're well into construction and, um, you know, it's an exciting uh, model to do. But of course, as you know, and you've been talking about many times on the show, we've got to have more and more of these units. If we're going to address affordable housing in Atlanta, it's certainly an all hands on deck. Um, and we want to show how maybe maybe not a usual suspect partner can come to the table and contribute just as much as uh, longstanding partners and leaders in affordable housing.
3: And as I've gotten two emails just popped up, Rose, when will these units be available? And again, this is a 170 unit affordable housing project. This is really this is off of Gartrail Trail Street.
5: Yep, yeah, exactly, Rose. You know this exactly. Yeah, right across from the MLK Marta Station and the MLK Natatorium. So folks will be right across the street from a beautiful And folks to ready to move in, Catherine.
3: Yeah. <laughs> I got to <laughs> wait a little bit.
5: Well, we're going to work as fast as we can, but we think um, we'll be able to move folks in in, in February of 2024. So um, we have about, it takes us about uh, 22 months uh, for the yeah. construction period. Um, but uh, we'll be engaging with the community and talking about it and making sure people know everything they need um, in order to make an application to this project well before that move-in date. So more to come on that. Um, but we also we sort of used to view this construction project, um, construction period as an opportunity to have a conversation with Atlanta, you know, mm-hmm. that we As I said to you, we don't want the goal is not to make the most special project in Atlanta, we want this to be a normal way of doing business. So however, we can invite the community in to both learn more about it um, and to shape uh, what this project is, but how it can inform future projects as well. That's how we really make that long term systems change.
3: And I can tell you, uh, and I am probably speaking on behalf of the community here, all the communities, all the neighborhoods, there's nothing more that they want than for you all to include them in all of this.
4: Yeah. Well,
5: you know, I will tell you, Rose, uh, we have learned uh, working in Atlanta for many years and trying to be uh, very present to immediate health needs that one of the most important things you can do is meet people where they are. Um, but when we ask people, what does it take to be healthy? One of the top things they say is that sense of belonging, that mm-hmm. well-being comes from being a part of a community and contributing. You know, People don't expect life to be without its bumps, um, but what they do want is to be heard, uh, to be engaged, to feel empowered. Um, and uh, we really want to make that commitment again this is important that we're adding units but it's in, the, in a campus where that belonging will be central uh, to the values we want to deliver here
3: all right a new affordable housing project underway near the king memorial Marta station has the backing of mercy care which is part of the saint joseph's health system mercy care ceo Catherine lawler thank you so much for taking time i really appreciate it
5: thank you Rose, and thank you for all the work you do for our community
3: thank you Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Here we go. Wow. Bill Russell changed the game of basketball. Bill Russell was a pioneer. But for many reasons beyond his 11 NBA titles and career stats, the Hall of Famer considered one of the greats to play professional basketball before Michael Jordan's dominance in the league. Russell was held as the greatest to play the game. And you could have any argument you could before then, but you weren't going to win. Bill Russell, also being remembered for his activism in the civil rights movement and merging his role as an athlete within social justice movements. I want to welcome in Ron Thomas from Morehouse College, chair of the Journalism and Sports, Culture and Social Justice Department, to talk all about this. Ron, welcome.
1: Well, thank you, um, Rose. It's a great to be able to hear it. To be here to talk about bill russell
3: yeah you know it's interesting because you and i've had these conversations before folks love to have the who was the greatest who was this who was that but let's be really clear for folks that don't know before michael jordan before he started dominating when you had that conversation you you were going to lose if you didn't say it was bill it was bill russell you were going to lose
1: well you know the celtics are known for being such a great team and having such a great legacy Um, But before they acquired Bill Russell in 1956, they had a very, very good team, but they could never get to the finals. Mm -hmm. And um, Red Arbeck said that the reason was because they didn't have a great rebounder. And so when you got to those tense moments at the end of playoffs games, they couldn't get the ball. Mm -hmm. And so he made um, a trade, which I, you know, I contend in, in my book called They Cleared the Lane was the second most important trade. In sports history.
3: I agree. Uh, the first, you
1: know, you'd have to say Babe Ruth going to the Yankees was yeah. the most important. But the second most important was uh, the uh, Celtics acquiring Russell, the rights to Russell. Uh, and here's the amazing thing about it. They, they traded with the St. Louis Hawks together. Mm-hmm. They traded to the St. Louis Hawks. Ed, Ed McCauley, who was their center, mm-hmm. and uh, draft pick Cliff Hagan. Both McCauley and Hagan went on to be members of the Basketball Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. And yet, if you ask any basketball expert, they will tell you that the deal was a steal
3: for, <laughs> yeah. the, for the Celtics. So. Let's talk about uh, on the court first, uh, because you and you and I know and a lot of folks who follow sports. I mean, the, the, the having a big man, as they say, and having a rebounder is so key and I remember reading somewhere where Bill Russell—he—he he was somebody's coach told him, you know, why are you leaving your feet? And he was like, no, nah, this is what I do. This is what I do. He had a style. I mean, people think you just go up and you grab the ball. There is an art to rebounding. Let's be really clear about this.
1: That is true, and and I think um, oh, that story comes from his college days at University of San Francisco, mm-hmm. um, where he blocked several shots of the opposing center right away. And the coach called timeout, and he was like, no, you're not supposed to leave your feet, which is the old style of playing defense. Mm -hmm. And so Russell didn't leave his feet for the next several plays, and the guy scored three baskets on him. (laughs) And Russell said, I'm going to go back to the way I play. (laughs) And so, um, you know, in that sense, he revolutionized the game. But, um, But where you really saw it. Was with him and his teammate from the University of San Francisco was Casey Jones, mm-hmm. and they both ended up with the Celtics. Casey was the point guard; he um, got the toughest defensive assignment, so he was covering people like Jerry West and Oscar Robertson, mm-hmm. and uh, and then Russell, you know, was the center behind him. And you know, even in college, they took a, a real intellectual uh, approach to, particularly, the defense, mm-hmm. and. Um, and and so they were plotting and, and figuring out ways they would work together. You know, you might have a situation maybe where Casey would let a guy sort of get into the lane, which normally you're not supposed to do, but then Russell would block his shot. And so they would plot things like that. But I think the other thing to, to think about with Russell um, was that he spent a lot of time studying the, uh, his opposing players and developing his own scouting report. Now, we have to remember, Russell joined the Celtics in 56.
3: That's where I'm going next. Yeah, I want to talk about that, though, Ron. I want to talk about playing in Boston during this time period.
1: So just let me mention this one thing about the scouting. Just that this is way before film, way before scouting reports, and there are a lot of doubleheaders in the NBA. So players, the game they were not playing, they could watch the other teams, mm-hmm. and they, and he would do his scouting report there and then come up with his own scouting plan against opposing players. So he did a lot of very innovative things to change the game.
3: Playing in Boston. Playing in Boston now. <laughs> you, you talk about what Jim yeah. Rice went through with the Red Sox, but we'll focus on Bill Russell. And the so- what was that climate like for Russell and Jones? What was that like, Ron? Well,
1: Boston had a reputation um, of being a racist city, and it, there were certain times where it, where it got worse. Um, one of the, you know, one of the um, times actually was during a time when there was all this uproar around the country about school busing. And um, one of the interesting stories about Russell is he was not afraid at all to speak out against racism. And there's a story of a reporter named George Sullivan who um, was interviewing him just after a game. They were just hanging out there, the last two guys in the locker room. And, during, and this was during the time when a woman named Louisa May Hicks mm-hmm. was adamantly adamantly opposed to busing. And this got violent in, um, in Boston to the point that a, a black person at one point was speared by someone carrying a, an American flag. And so it was really, really vicious. And, um, and Russell at that point, said to uh, Sullivan um, that Boston was the most racist city in in the United States. And Sullivan wasn't sure that he was seeing it on the record. So he went back and asked him, right? And, you know, is this on the record? And Russell said, yes. You know, he repeated it. And and then he said to Sullivan, um, your paper hasn't got the guts to run that story. Hmm. So Sullivan goes back to his editors. The sports editor loved it, told the managing editor. He loved it, thought it was a great story. Got to the publisher and he said, Said, um, you know, it's a great story, but it would further inflame the town, so they didn't run the story. Mm-hmm. And uh, the next day, Russell sees the reporter and he, and he says, "You know, I was looking through the paper yesterday, and I did not see that quote." And uh, and and that was the type of city it was that even the the the, the, the newspaper would not be frank about racism. And one of the, one of the worst things that happened to Russell um, was that. At one point, and he lived in a, in a Boston suburb, and bec- because he was so um, outspoken and so on, um, some people broke into his house mm-hmm. and they, they ruined much of his house. And the worst thing they did was they defecated in his bed. Mm-hmm. And this is these types of things um, were one of the reasons that when Russell left, you know, retired from the Celtics, um, that he was very bitter about the city and it took decades really for that to be sort of healed slowly over time. Um it you know, Russell in a way was sort of like Ali, that in many ways they were reviled figures when they were athletes, and as time went on, they became revered by society.
3: You mentioned Ali, Muhammad Ali, we all know of this very iconic photo. Bill Russell is there, I believe Jim Brown is there, uh Muhammad Ali, he was in Lou but Kareem Karim Abdudbar and all these other civil rights figures surrounding Muhammad Ali. And we know, and that's a whole other conversation that we've already had in terms of what he was dealing with. Russell, at the March on Washington, civil rights, social justice, he used his... He intertwined both of these. And this is really, is he part of that generation that was first to do this? in terms of using what he could as a platform, as a professional athlete, even when he was, wasn't was playing basketball anymore. And also speaking out against social injustice, speaking on behalf of equality and everything involved with that, he is part of that, that first group of athletes to do this.
1: Well, he is. And I think it's really important to think of this in context. Um, we have athletes who do this now, mm-hmm. but back when Russell was doing it, uh, they didn't have any type of the protection. He didn't have any type of the protection that athletes have here. Now, for instance, the the basketball players association was formed in 1954, mm-hmm. But it wasn't recognized by the owners as the, you know, as the um, union for the players until 1964. So, you know, if Russell said something outspoken and had he played for different owners um, than, than Walter Brown and um, with the Celtics, you know, suppose they suspended him
3: mm-hmm.
1: for being outspoken. Well, he didn't have a union that was strong enough to back him up, you know, and um, this is a time when players didn't have agents. Uh, they, they didn't have the support. And so Russell was going out on a limb. Now, he he, he certainly did have the support in that he had a great owner. And Walter Brown, he had a great coach in Red Araby, and and they backed him up. But still, the fact is, um, he was in a very vulnerable position when he spoke out the way he did. And uh, and also, I think the other thing Russell recognized was that because he was a superstar he could speak out mm-hmm. about um, discrimination players faced, particularly when it, when they played exhibition games mm-hmm. and towns would not um, serve black players at restaurants or let them stay in the same hotels as their white teammates. You know, when he spoke out, he was really speaking for other black players too throughout the league who, because they were not superstars, didn't have the protection he did. He didn't have to worry about his job. Mm-hmm. And I think Um, Some people might have used it as an excuse to not say anything, but he used it as a reason to be outspoken.
3: You all have come so far and you have been so instrumental in developing what you now have, the journalism and sports culture and social justice department at Morehouse College. And how much of his legacy are you passing on to this next generation?
1: You know, we—I teach a sports reporting class, and we talk about these um, incidences all the time. If, if if school had started now, this is what we'd be talking about today. Mm-hmm. And um, and you know, I also teach a news writing class, but I'd be talking about it there too because he's so important. Um, but I want to mention one thing that's a concern of mine for other educators. Mm-hmm. You know, there are states like Florida and others where they put in these rules that really limit how much teachers can talk about race.
3: Mm-hmm
1: and and this is where you this is one case where you see the harm if you're a high school teacher now you know your your students are nba fans and they've heard about bill russell so you want to talk about it in class let's say mm-hmm. well if you are not supposed to talk about racism in america and about what's happened in the past then you can only talk about half of bill russell's legacy mm-hmm. you can only talk about him as a player but you can't talk about what we spent most of our talking most of our time talking about and that leads to um, a lack of education for the generations
3: to come absolutely and being limited as an educator to how you talk about race and racism when it's all there it's not like folks are making it up it's all there as you wrap up ron what has bill russell meant to you you've covered sports for a long time you've covered so many athletes and particularly in this space when we talk about activism what is his legacy to you on a personal level
1: I think he certainly is a beacon for those of us who care about these issues of uh, racism and civil rights and and social justice in sports and in society. Um, I think these people who spoke up uh, when they were not protected and and continued to speak up after people tried to abuse them in different ways, um, those go beyond greatness in sports, they become heroic figures. And uh, Russell certainly is one for me.
3: Absolutely. From Morehouse College, he's the chair of the Journalism and Sports, Culture, and Social Justice Department. Longtime colleague, friend, Ron Thomas, thank you so much for taking time. I really appreciate it.
1: You're welcome, Rose.
3: And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our producers... Our Janine Edder, LaShawn Hudson, and Daniel Razell, and Pat St. Clair. Lennox Johnson is our Closer Look Summer intern. Our engineer for today was Daniel, pulling double duty. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Just send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed even today's incredible show, you can find the entire program online, wabe.org slash closer look, as well as in our podcast. So subscribe wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott.